Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. We're now over 90 episodes in on the history of surgery, yet there is one area that I have admittedly overlooked. Surgical nutrition. Fortunately, one astute listener pointed this out. So why is this so important? Surgeons had long recognized that patients in good nutritional condition had better operative results, including rate and quality of wound healing, incidence of complications, and morbidity and survival. Often patients would present with a disorder that had already impaired their ability to adequately maintain nutrition, and so were not in ideal condition, and frequently the surgery itself precluded feeding by mouth right after the operation. Some surgeries can directly affect the ability to absorb nutrients, like the removal of a portion of small bowel, plus many conditions, such as severe burns, extensive trauma, large cancers, and others, would in fact increase the regular nutritional requirements, as can post-operative complications such as sepsis, prolonged ileus, or wound breakdown. And imagine if the patient is a child, with the added requirements for growth and development. Clearly, this was a real issue in surgery. Fortunately, we've come a long way in providing nutrition for these patients, and the story of how we got there is quite interesting. So let's dig in and fill our minds with history in this episode of Legends of Surgery. While there are many origin stories, if you will, about medical advances, Few can be directly traced back to a single weekend of call. But in the case of Total Parental Nutrition, or TPN, that is exactly what happened. In November of 1961, as a surgical intern, Dr. Stanley Dudrick lost three critically ill patients over a weekend. Emotionally defeated, Dr. Dudrick told his mentor, Dr. Jonathan Rhodes, that he didn't think he had what it took to become a surgeon, and in this low moment, considered pursuing another career path. In Dr. Dudrick's own telling, Dr. Rhodes, quote, gently put his arm around my shoulders and guided me to a bench in the hallway of the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and consoled me. He then proceeded to teach me that his three patients had all died ultimately from severe malnutrition and that nothing more could have been done for them because they were unable to eat and we were not able to feed them adequately by vein or any other means. In a kind and gentlemanly manner, and with that patented twinkle in his eyes, he challenged me to spend some time in the Harrison Department of Surgical Research Laboratories to try to do something about overcoming malnutrition in surgical patients parenterally rather than succumbing, like the three patients, to the ravages of starvation, end quote. The rest is, as they say, history. And as this is a History of Surgery podcast, that's exactly what we'll be covering. But before we get into the details of Dr. Dudrick's work, Let's step back a bit and talk about some of the earliest attempts to feed patients by means other than PO, aka per os, Latin for by mouth. I'm not going too deep into the surprisingly popular use of clisters, the old name for enemas, from the Greek word klizine, meaning to rinse or wash out. The use of clisters as a cure-all dates back at least to ancient Egypt and is mentioned in the famous Ebers Papyrus dating back to 1550 BCE, which described the use of small tubes made from clay or ceramic pipes tied to animal bladders to deliver milk, whey, wine, and barley broths as a form of food and medication. As a side note, if you've ever heard the phrase to blow smoke up your arse, that actually comes from medical practice. In the late 1700s, it was a mainstream medical procedure which involved inserting a tube in the rectum which was connected to a fumigator and bellows, and literally forcing smoke up someone's behind. 
The most common application was to resuscitate drowning victims. In 1774, two London physicians named William Hawes and Thomas Cogan formed the Institution for Affording Immediate Relief to Persons Apparently Dead from Drowning, which advocated the use of tobacco smoke enemas for resuscitation. In fact, they came up with a little rhyme to help people remember. Tobacco clister, breathe and bleed. Keep warm and rub till you succeed. And spare no pains, for what you do may one day be repaid to you. And that organization with the unwieldy name? It went on to become the Royal Humane Society. And I'm not just blowing smoke up your... Well, you get the idea. No, let's talk about the more traditional parenteral, or not-by-mouth root, which translates from the Greek to beside the intestine, and that is directly into the veins. While we have English physician William Harvey to thank for our knowledge of systemic circulation, it was Sir Christopher Wren who first provided nutrients intravenously in the middle of the 17th century. In 1656, Wren and Anglo-Irish chemist Robert Boyle injected substances through a goose quill attached to a pig bladder into a dog's vein. This was directly in response to Harvey's groundbreaking work, Exercitatio Anatomica de Motu Cortis et Sanguinis in Animalibus, or shortened to Du Motu Cortis, which translates to an anatomical essay concerning the movement of the heart and the blood in animals, published in 1628. This book essentially threw out the old concepts of Galen and other ancients that postulated that blood was formed by certain organs and sent to parts of the body where it was needed, getting used up rather than returning to the heart. Harvey explained, using some famous experiments, that blood was pumped by the heart to the body, to which it returned, creating a circuit, hence circulation. The missing link, capillary blood vessels that connect arteries and veins, were hypothesized by Harvey but proven by Italian physician Marcello Malpighi and Dutch scientist Antoni van Leeuwenhoek through the use of a new invention, the microscope. This strange new concept that blood continuously circulates around the body had some groundbreaking repercussions in the understanding of physiology and pathology. Wren and his colleagues were interested in some of these ramifications, specifically whether a substance, even when unmodified by gastrointestinal digestion, could be carried by the circulation to the tissues and still exert their characteristic effects. Wren injected a dog with opium and showed that they were temporarily stupefied but survived. He also injected a dog with an emetic, which was used to make patients vomit, which was popular in the 17th century called Crocus metallorum, which was impure antimony sulfoxide. The dog vomited and died. While a bit gruesome, these experiments and others, Wren continued to experiment with injections into dogs, set the stage for administering medications and other substances intravenously. And just a bit more on Sir Christopher Wren. On November 28, 1660, Wren and Boyle were meeting with 10 other scientists where Wren gave a lecture. This gathering is thought to be the first meeting that would lead to the formal chartering of the Royal Society of London for the Improvement of Natural Knowledge, better known simply as the Royal Society. And if you think that this Renaissance man had done enough at this point, he was just getting warmed up. His scientific works in anatomy, he did illustrations for Thomas Willis's Anatomy of the Brain at the age of 21. Astronomy, physics, and mathematics would be enough to make an entire podcast episode, but don't worry, I won't. 
yet most know him for his architectural works. After the Great Fire of London in 1666, Wren was put in charge of rebuilding 52 churches, the most famous of which, his masterpiece, was St. Paul's Cathedral. It was completed in 1710 and remained the tallest building in London until 1963. It still stands today, looking the same as it did when Wren first dreamt it up more than 300 years ago. Let's skip ahead to the 19th century, specifically to the England of 1831, which was at the beginning of a terrible cholera epidemic which would go on to kill 23,000 people. Side note, the origins of the name cholera have been subject of some academic speculation, but the prevailing theory is that it comes directly from the Greek word cholera, spelt with a K, which meant a type of disease characterized by diarrhea supposedly caused by bile. Now the word for bile was kol, think cholecystectomy, removal of the gallbladder, itself so-called because of its green color, related to the word chloros, which means pale green or greenish yellow. And that is the same root word for that all-important molecule, chlorophyll. Anyways, a young Scottish doctor named William O'Shaughnessy felt that the sufferers of cholera essentially lacked oxygen in the blood, and he proposed that, quote, if we could bring certain salts of highly oxygenated constitution fairly into contact with the black blood of cholera, we would certainly restore its arterial properties and most probably terminate the bad symptoms of the case, end quote. In a letter to the Lancet dated December 29, 1831, outlining the results of his experiments on the blood of cholera victims, O'Shaughnessy stated that the blood had lost a large proportion of its water and neutral saline ingredients. And now we're getting closer. But although O'Shaughnessy recommended, quote, the injection into the veins of tepid water holding a solution of the normal salts of the blood, end quote, he did not attempt this on human patients, although some dogs did receive IV solutions. Fortunately, his Lancet article caught the eye of Dr. Thomas Latta. His initial attempts were to inject, quote, copiously into the larger intestine, warm water holding in its solution the requisite salts, and also administered quantities from time to time by the mouth, end quote. But as you can imagine, this didn't really work, particularly in a diarrheal illness. So he decided to try it by IV, but as he said, quote, having no precedent to direct me, I proceeded with much caution, end quote. Latta did not have to wait long for a patient, as a woman presented to him with profound dehydration. His description of the effect of the IV solution is fascinating, so let me give you a little taste. Having inserted a tube into the basilic vein, cautiously, anxiously, I watched the effect. Ounce after ounce was injected, but no visible change was produced. Still persevering, I thought she began to breathe less laboriously. Soon the sharpened features and sunken eye and fallen jaw, pale and cold, bearing the manifest impress of death's signet, began to glow with returning animation. The pulse, which had long ceased, returned to the wrist, at first small and quick. By degrees it became more and more distinct, fuller, slower and firmer, and in a short space of half an hour when six pints had been injected, she expressed in a firm voice that she was free from all uneasiness, actually became jocular, and fancied all she needed was a little sleep. Her extremities were warm, and every feature bore the aspect of comfort and health. While this was initially successful, sadly she relapsed and died within five hours. However, within three weeks, Lada published a report of three further cases, 
on June 16, 1832, in case you're wondering, one of which was successful, which is essentially the first description of successful resuscitation by intravenous saline. And while his ideas were not immediately taken up by the medical community, at least one fellow practitioner had the foresight to predict the impact of IV saline, writing in The Lancet, quote, A method of medical treatment which will, I predict, entitle Dr. Latta's name to be placed amongst the numbers of those, alas, how few, who have really contributed to the improvement of the healing art, end quote. Sadly, as you can imagine, this did not come to pass, but hey, at least we're talking about him now, right? Now we've established the concept of providing fluids and electrolytes by IV. Some of the first proper experiments in intravenous feeding began with Dr. Robert Ellman, a surgeon working in St. Louis, Missouri in the late 1940s. His work was on developing protein substrates, or building blocks, but these experiments were interrupted by the Second World War. Following his return from the war front, he compiled his work in a classic surgical paper, Parenteral Alimentation in Surgery with Special Reference to Proteins and Amino Acids. By 1960, an understanding that starvation caused an inevitable loss of nitrogen and subsequent reduction in total body protein was achieved. Now, the concept of nitrogen balance is an important one in metabolism. Because nitrogen is a fundamental component of amino acids, the building blocks of protein, the measurement of nitrogen intake and output can be used as a marker to determine if a patient is in a state of anabolism, where they are taking in more protein than they lose, a state of positive nitrogen balance, and so are adding protein, and catabolism, where they are losing more than they are taking in and so have a negative nitrogen balance. Okay, so now we have caught up to Dr. Dudrick, whose storybook call opened the episode. With a surgical problem to solve, the next step was to get to work in the lab, which he would typically do after midnight when his shift was over. He used beagle puppies as a model because the veterinary literature contained precise oral nutrient requirements. Now, why would this be? Because the Atomic Energy Commission for studies relevant to the detonation of the atomic bomb on the Bikini Atoll had chosen the beagle species as one of its experimental animals. Allow me to explain. After World War II, the U.S. government and the Atomic Energy Commission specifically wanted to better understand the biological effects of radiation on humans. You obviously can't experiment on people, with some exceptions, and if you're interested in hearing more about that, stick around for suture tales at the end of the podcast. So they needed an animal model. The University of Utah got the first contract to investigate radiation with emphasis on large animals. They chose beagles simply because of the breed's size, ready availability at low cost, and docile temperament. The need for animals increased quickly, leading to an on-site breeding program to supply enough animals. In 1952, the newspaper Salt Lake Tribute ran a story about these dogs entitled The Hounds of Beagleville, with the subtitle They May Save Your Life. However, despite experiments such as injecting these dogs with the radioactive isotope of plutonium, over the nearly 30-year history of the program, thousands of dead dogs and millions spent, there was essentially no significant contribution to our knowledge of radioactive materials in human health. Now, there are many reasons for this, but one may be that most people with exposures are typically low-dose and chronic, not directly injected into their bodies at huge doses. Now, there is one lasting legacy from these experiments, though. The establishment of an industry that breeds beagles for research laboratories, something still occurring today, which the experiments by Dudrick illustrate. At this time, 
the medical community hung on to the belief that feeding by vein would be impossible, or at the very least so expensive that it would not be achievable. Many thought Dr. Dudrick was wasting his time on a difficult and foolish pursuit. But as one article written by Dr. Dudrick pointed out, in our normal state, the body cells receive all the nutrition required via vascular circulation. Think about it. We eat. The gastrointestinal system breaks the food into molecules small enough to be absorbed into the bloodstream to be delivered to all of the body cells to provide energy, the building blocks for synthesis, and all other functions. The key was figuring out the right recipe, so to speak. The problem to solve wasn't whether it was possible. The problem was to figure out how to do it. In Dudrick's own words, quote, The dumbest gastrointestinal tract is smarter than the smartest physician, surgeon, nurse, dietitian, pharmacist, scientist, or nutritionist. This is the inherent fundamental advantage of oral or enteral nutrition over TPN in regulating the safety and efficacy of clinical nutritional support, end quote. But the question remained, could a person survive solely on parenteral nutrition, taking nothing in by mouth? There is an interesting example of this already occurring in nature. Have you thought of it yet? Let me quote Sir David Cuthbertson, a Scottish physician, biochemist, and nutritionist. Quote, Lest we forget, I would remind you that we all owe our fetal life till parturition to the passage of the nutrients we require from the blood vessels of our mothers into our blood vessels as they traverse the chorionic villi in close relation. End quote. I'll be the first to admit that it didn't occur to me, but obviously everything needed to sustain and grow life can be received via the bloodstream, as clearly demonstrated by that miracle of evolution, the placenta. Oh. Quick aside about placentas. While the placenta in mammals evolved only once in a common ancestor, non-mammals have independently evolved a placenta or a similar structure multiple times. Did you know that some cartilaginous fish like the stingray, as well as ground sharks, and some types of fish, frogs, lizards, and snakes give birth to live young, called viviparity, as opposed to eggs called oviparity, and develop some form of placenta. One of my favorite examples is the wonderfully named pot-bellied seahorse. Its official name is hippocampus abdominalis. As you may know, the region of the brain called the hippocampus is so-called because it is shaped like a seahorse. And the etymology of hippocampus comes from the Greek word hippos, meaning horse, and campos, meaning sea monster. And since the hippocampus is involved in the formation of new memories, among other things, I hope yours is activated and will remember these fun facts. But one last thing on placentas. Now, the act of eating the placenta, which has the medical name placentophagy, is common among non-human mammals but has only rare examples in human culture. Chinese traditional medicine does use human placenta, but not for the postpartum mother, but rather to treat kidney and liver ailments as well as low energy. One study could trace back the first record of the phenomenon placentophagy in Western medical literature to just 1973. It has since become somewhat of a fad, although there are no studies demonstrating any benefit. And finally, one interesting debate around this is whether or not this constitutes cannibalism. Food for thought, pun intended. But back to our story. Dr. Dudrick first spent nearly two years teaching himself the fundamentals of nutrition and metabolism, reading more than 600 papers related to parenteral nutrition, trying to conceive a solution that would sustain patients long-term. 
The standard components of parenteral nutrition include macronutrients like protein or amino acids, carbohydrate and lipids or fats, electrolytes, micronutrients, trace elements and vitamins, and water. We won't go into the history of each component, although that is out there. For example, the first intravenous infusion of lipids was in 1712 when English naturalist Sir William Corton infused one gram per kilogram body weight of olive oil into a dog. As you might guess, this did not end well. The dogs died quickly, likely from fat embolism into the lungs. However, by the time Dedrick was tackling the problem, there had been some advances. Sugar, or dextrose solutions, and some protein hydrolysates had been used in rare occasion to try to meet nutritional needs, and there was a fat product called lipomol, which had been taken off the market in 1965 due to problematic reactions. But none of these had been used for more than a few days at a time. So by 1968, Dudrick had spent enough time in the lab perfecting his recipe of TPN, so to speak, and began the first animal experiments. As mentioned, he used beagle puppies. This study involved taking eight-week-old male beagles and dividing them into two groups. One group would receive a normal oral diet, the other total parenteral nutrition, through a polyvinyl catheter inserted into the external jugular vein, passed into the superior vena cava, and subcutaneously tunneled between the scapulae. The solution included macronutrients, micronutrients, and vitamins needed for long-term nourishment. The pups in the parenteral group had increased weight gain and similar lean body mass at 256 days compared to controls, which was, at the least, a demonstration of proof of concept. This also allowed the researchers to work out basic but important issues, like the correct concentrations of substrates, avoiding creating solutes that would crystallize out of solution, avoiding contamination of the nutrient-rich concoctions, where to place the intravenous catheters, and so forth. In fact, one issue was that every commercial medical-grade tubing or catheter tested resulted in an inflammatory subcutaneous response. A roll of Irvington brand polyvinyl tubing, designed for use as insulation for monofilament wire, was purchased from the Pep Boys store a few blocks from the university campus. The basic infusion system was constructed with lure fittings, microphone jacks, speedometer cables, and aluminum and stainless steel scraps scavenged in the surgical laboratories. Limited human trials followed in six severely malnourished patients. They suffered from a variety of causes, including regional enteritis, small bowel obstruction, pancreatitis, achalasia, and gastric outlet obstruction. Ranging from 15 to 48 days, these patients tolerated the infusions without complication, showing positive nitrogen balance, weight gain, normal wound healing, increased strength, activity, and sense of well-being. But the real test was yet to come. A newborn girl with near total small bowel atresia, meaning her small bowel was either narrowed or was completely blocked, leading to bowel obstruction and the inability to feed, was treated by surgeons at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where they anastomosed, or joined up, the blind end of her dilated duodenum and the three centimeters that was left of her terminal ileum. Unfortunately, this was too little intestinal length to absorb the fluids and nutrients needed to survive. Born at 2.3 kilograms, she weighed just 1.8 kilograms at three weeks, and it was clear to her clinicians that she would not survive. An ad hoc committee was struck to consider the ethical and medical issues of providing Dr. Dudrick's TPN to her, and it was agreed that it should be attempted. A solution of 25% glucose, 5% fibrin, protein hydrosylate, vitamins, trace elements, and electrolytes were infused 
and the little girl became responsive and active within 24 hours. The research team analyzed every aspect of growth, collected every drop of urine, stool, and gastrointestinal drainage, and compared their composition to what the baby received in her infusions. A developmental psychiatrist was brought in to examine her at regular intervals. Over the first few months, she continued to improve and gained weight. However, some complications arose. She showed signs of rickets, which is a weakening or softening of the bones. The team determined that the amount of calcium was adequate, but doubled the vitamin D levels, which quickly resolved the problem. Essential fatty acid deficiency also developed, as there was no fat in the solution since none was available at the time, and so they actually took the parent's blood after a fatty meal, centrifuged the blood, and added the lipid-rich plasma into the PN solution, which solved the problem. This young patient spent 22 months in hospital receiving all of her nutrition intravenously and had numerous venous catheterizations. Due to a lack of technology to administer TPN at home, the lack of vascular access, and the ethical issues of having her essentially live in the hospital, the PN feedings were stopped and the patient died. Let me again turn to Dr. Dudrick himself to drive home how important this experiment was. Quote, Although she eventually died, clinicians and scientists gained enormous nutritional, metabolic, and technological experience during her management, which was unprecedented, and her legacy to the clinical application and development of parenteral nutrition is unparalleled. End quote. The fat emulsions and vitamins would be added to the mix in 1975, along with electrolytes, and eventually trace elements to create the TPN that we know today. Further technological developments, mainly born from the development of home dialysis, allowed for patients to receive TPN at home. And finally, the development of the central line was crucial to safely providing TPN, but that is a story for another day, perhaps. All right, if you're still here, that's great, as it's time for another installment of Suture Tales. I came across a bizarre story while researching this podcast that was just too interesting not to share. I'm sure many of you have heard of the Manhattan Project, but for those of you that haven't, it was a U.S. government research and development project to create the first nuclear weapon, which culminated in the manufacture of the bombs known as Little Boy and Fat Man, which were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, respectively, in August of 1945. The project, under the direction of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, began in 1942. As they were working with uranium and plutonium, whose radioactive isotopes had only been isolated in 1940, no one knew what the health effects of exposure might be. Therefore, General Leslie Groves, who was running the project, hired University of Rochester radiologist Dr. Stafford Warren as chief medical officer. It was decided that experiments should be carried out to develop a diagnostic tool that could determine the uptake of plutonium in the body from the amount excreted in urine and feces, which was deemed essential for the protection of workers who would produce and fashion plutonium metal for use in these early atomic bombs. By 1944, plans had been made to perform controlled experiments on a limited number of terminally ill patients. Between April of 1945 to July of 1947, 30 subjects were injected with radioactive elements including polonium, americium, uranium, and plutonium. These were done with such a high level of secrecy that many of the physicians involved themselves were unaware of the exact substance that were being injected into their patients. And it is almost certainly likely that none of the 30 patients chosen had any idea of the nature of the injections that they were receiving. 
Now, thanks to investigative reporting done in the 1990s, a number of these patients have been identified. And while all of their stories are important, I want to focus on just one, a person with the dubious honor of surviving the highest known accumulated radiation dose in human history, or as one source put it, 125% of the effective dose from standing directly next to the Chernobyl reactor core after meltdown for 10 minutes. So who was this patient and what happened to them? Known in the experiment simply as Cal-1, Albert Stevens was a 58-year-old house painter who had been admitted to the hospital at the University of California, San Francisco for a, quote, malignant ulcer of the stomach, end quote, considered a terminal diagnosis, and was given six months to live. On May 14th of 1945, he unknowingly was given the dose of plutonium just described. A few days later, Mr. Stevens was taken to the OR for palliative surgery. Specimens were taken during surgery for radiological testing, and urine and stool samples were also collected. The surgeons assumed he had received radioactive phosphorus for special studies. During the procedure, the surgeons found, quote, a huge, ulcerating, carcinomatous mass that had grown into his spleen and liver, half of the left lobe of the liver, the entire spleen, most of the ninth rib, lymph nodes, part of the pancreas, and a portion of the omentum were taken out, end quote. But there was a problem. The pathologist who examined the specimen found a benign gastric ulcer with chronic inflammation. There was no cancer. <gasps> Mr. Stevens was discharged home to recover. Officials with the Manhattan Project decided to pay for his urine and stool samples to keep him close to San Francisco on the pretext that his remarkable recovery from cancer was being studied. And it gets weirder. Mr. Stevens kept these samples in a shed behind his house, which were collected once a week by a nurse and intern which continued for nearly a year. He never even knew that he didn't have cancer, and certainly didn't know about the experiment. His wife and daughter were suspicious, but figured, quote, they were using him for a guinea pig, end quote. Mr. Stevens died on January 9th, 1966, at the age of 79 from heart disease, 21 years after his nuclear dose. And he never did develop cancer. His remains were so radioactive that they were transferred to the National Human Radiobiology Tissue Repository at Washington State University, which keeps the remains of people who have died having radioisotopes in their bodies. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time, I think we'll have another guest episode, this time on the history of esophageal cancer. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there. Or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, but your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>